Today's sermon text is Philippians third chapter, starting with the 17th verse and ending with chapter four, verse one. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is God's word. Good morning. My name is Robert Jones, and as Becky mentioned, I'm the, being hired to be the next family pastor here at Renewal Church, which we're very excited about. Uh, amen. Thank you. If you've, uh, if you've volunteered uh, with Amy and Tommy over the years, uh, I ask you to do that for, for me. Uh, Braveheart is one of my favorite movies, and at the end of Braveheart, at, William Wallace has, has died. Spoiler alert. Sorry, I should have said that beforehand. But... <laughs> There's Robert the Bruce is this general, and he goes onto the battlefield and he looks at the men that, that fought with William Wallace and he said, You've bled with Wallace, now bleed with me. That's, you've bled with Amy, now, now bleed with me. Figuratively and literally. So that's children's ministry and family ministry. Bleed with me. Uh, in my office, I have a quote hanging there uh, that I've heard before, but kind of dismissed it, and I recently have stumbled upon it, and it hangs there for me to, to think about. It's a quote by Jonathan Edwards, a great American pastor and theologian of the 1700s. He's an amazing man. You should read up or listen about his life. It's, he's an amazing man. But he had these, these resolutions, I think about 70 of them, and they're, they're, they're amazing. They're incredible. But resolution... Number 55 is the one that I have in my office. It says this. Resolved to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven in hell, hell's torments. I'll say that again, but I'll put it in a little more common day language. Resolved that I will seek to my utmost to act in such a way as if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. So this morning in the sermon... That's, that's, that's my resolve, is to talk about what, the, what, is, what our passage addresses, to talk about the, the happiness of heaven, and praise God for that, but also to talk about the torments of hell. It's, all week has been so hard when you prepare a sermon, when you, when you come to the scriptures and, and you have to deal with such a heavy subject. And even, and even uh, during worship, I love to worship. I love to worship. You know, I'm hands out. You know, I love to worship. Uh, it was hard this morning because, in one sense, uh, I, it, was, it was easy to, to worship God for his goodness and his love that we've been singing about. But, but we know there's no worship songs about hell. There's, there's no worship songs that talk about its torment, and rightfully so. 
when you, when you read Scripture, uh, when you read Paul and all his letters, it's, 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 it's fun to, to, to read him as he's describing this, these amazing things of God. And sometimes just in the middle, of it, he breaks out in, into a hymn of, of praise. And rightfully so. He doesn't, after describing hell, he doesn't break off into a hymn on that. But one thing that's, that, that we know as it describes in the Psalms, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in Revelation, is that one day we will sing worship songs to God for his justice. It's hard for us to imagine that, and rightfully so. But we will praise God for his justice. We will say uh, that song that we sing, and all the angels cry out, holy is the Lord. That's part of his holiness, is his, his goodness and his justice to take care of sin. And we praise him for that. We're thankful for that. Because if you've ever been abused, if you've ever experienced pain, if you've ever done that to somebody, if you're a Christian, God's justice is met at the cross. And God punishes that. He takes all of that and puts that on Jesus. And he punishes it on Jesus. God doesn't wink at sin. When we ask for forgiveness, if you're struggling with forgiveness this morning, you don't have to struggle with the fact that God winks at sin. He winks at that sin that was done to you. If, you're, if the person that harmed you is a believer, that sin is placed on Jesus' back, on his bloody back. But if, if that sin was caused by somebody that, whose end is their God is their stomach, their end is destruction, God's justice is found in hell. And we have to, we have to honor God for that. We, we, we look at... How can we not look at a world full of suicide bombing and terrorism and rape and divorce and pain? It's in ourselves to say, God, where's the justice? Where's the justice? The doctrine of hell gives that to us. So we have to talk about it. This is where Paul talks about it in this letter. This is his most sustained treatment of, of the ungodly person in this letter. We're so human, we're so finite, it's hard for us to think about eternity. We're in the, the grind day in and day out of life, of, of working hard to make a living, of getting your kids to different activities, of overcoming sickness, of doing the dishes. It's hard for us to think about eternity. The good and the bad. But this morning, this is our passage, so that this, is, this is our resolve this morning to, to look at this. We must. So if you will permit me this morning, I don't have any more jokes. I don't have any more good stories to tell, more fun stories, more lighthearted points. I've got the glorious truths of heaven, but I have the hard truths of hell. So I can't. I can't. I've been crying all week over this. And so there's two things that I want us to think about this morning as, we're, as we re- look at this passage. I want you to to know something with your minds. I want you to feel something with your hearts. Knowledge and affections. Thinking rightly, feeling rightly. Maybe you've heard that phrase that to to think thinking rightly leads to right behavior. It's a good phrase. I believe in it wholeheartedly. I believe in theology and doctrine. But the older I get, the more I learn about <laughs> we've been looking at, at Philippians. It's all in Philippians about the affections that Paul deals with, the emotions that Paul goes through in this book. 
I learned that right thinking plus right affections equals leads to right behavior. So we must think, we must feel, we must have truth, we must have tears. So first, let us look at uh, our scripture, verse 17. Brothers, join me in imitating me and I... And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So you see what, what he's laying out in the rest of, these, of this passage. And what he's been doing all up to this passage is he's been describing those who walk, uh, who you should imitate, living a life worthy of the gospel. Philippians 1.27. To live as Christ. That's the name of this sermon series. That is the example we're called to live. And he's contrasting that with those who walk against that as enemies of the cross. Preach the gospel boldly, he says. Suffer for the sake of Jesus. Lay down your life for the sake of others as Jesus did. Who went from heaven to earth, to the cross, to hell, on the cross, in the grave. Live a life worthy of the gospel and unity and love for other believers for the sake of a dark and twisted world. But at the, poor, at the core of Paul's life is knowing Christ. That's what Chris has just finished the past couple of weeks talking about. That he's considered his, everything that he would have stacked up that made him feel good and that he could, how he could earn God's righteousness, his good works. He says, I consider that rubbish because at the core of Paul's life is knowing Christ and treasuring Christ. It's knowing Christ and treasuring Christ. Knowing him fully and completely. Imitate this, he says. Follow me. Others like this, follow, follow me. This is the biblical plan of discipleship in a church. Every one of us should have somebody that we're either discipling or that we're following. That is, that is, that is what we should strive for. That is what Paul wants. And then he goes on to describe... After he talks about the ungodly, which we'll get to, he describes the Christ-honoring further. He gives them the truth of who they are, whose they are, and where they are going. He says, you have another kingdom. Your citizenship is in heaven. You have another king, the Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. And he has omnipotent power. He says, you have another outcome than you can see and feel right now in your lowly bodies. We all know what it means to have a lowly body, don't we? It will be transformed into a glorious one, like the glorious body of Christ. There's another reality, he said. There's more. There's more. There's not just the here and now. There's more. That's what we have to put on this morning, our eternity goggles, our eternity glasses, and, and look into it. Because there's more than just this. There's an age to come. And you belong there because of your Savior, is what Paul is telling them. What a political statement that Paul says here. Imagine being, being there. And that first century Jew, you're in a Roman colony, or a Jew or Gentile that he's writing to. You're in a Roman colony. Caesar is Lord. Roman is your citizenship and all the benefits that come from it. And he says, no, your citizenship, he doesn't deny the Roman citizenship. We're still citizens of the United States of America, of this world. But we also have another citizenship. It's, 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 a, it's a massive political statement. That's probably shocking to them. They probably wonder, Paul, can, can you write that? 
don't you know you get persecuted? And he's like, yeah, I'm writing from jail. I was persecuted. But that, that, that's, that's what he wants them to know. Caesar is not Lord. The man, the man of sorrows, as he's described. The lowly man who loved the weak, took care of the poor, fought for justice, was spit upon, was looked over, that man who died on a cross, who rose from the dead, he is Lord. Think about him. Paul is reminding them that, they're eternal, that there's an eternal reward, giving them this heavenly mindset. I came across Hebrews 11 when I was thinking about this. It describes the life of Moses. It says this in Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Think of that phrase later on when we get to the ungodly. He considered the reproach of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What a beautiful truth. What a needed truth that we must believe, we must remember this morning. The truth of heaven, the truth of our future. That the pleasures of sin are fleeting and passing away. But how does, how does Paul end the section on truth? He gets over here. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Look at the emotional language of that. It's as if, imagine, imagine my, my son, Mason, he's six months old, but imagine him, teenager, late teens, early 20s. Imagine he, he, he's, he's put in a situation with his friends where they're about to go out drinking and driving, going to a strip club, and, and they want him to come. They're pressuring him to come. He's like, come on, Mason, come on, come on, let's go. Let's have fun. Live, live, Mason. And he, 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 based on his convictions of his faith, he, he, he feels conflicted. He knows he shouldn't, but they're his friends. And he knows if he rejects them, he knows he'll get ridiculed. He might lose them. So imagine him in, in, in that, the torment of that mind. Just he, he sends me a text. Dad, Dad, what do I do? Help me. Help me, Dad. What do you think I would do? Do you think I would just send him a text? Say, son, let's, let's, let's weigh the positive and negatives. I would. I would talk about the truth. It said, son, you could kill yourself. You could kill someone else. Don't you know how many people are spending the rest of their lives in jail because they drink and drive and they've killed somebody? Those pleasures of sin are fleeting, son. That's what, that's the, the angst in my voice. Do you hear that? That's what I would be saying to him. Son, I love you. You're my beloved. I'm proud of you. You are the Lord's. He will satisfy you. Don't go for the simple, puny pleasures of this world, son. He has to feel that. He has to know it and he has to feel it. We all act from our emotions. We all act from our hearts. That's how we're created. And that is a good thing. We have to act from knowledge too. We have to. We lose one, we lose we lose the Bible. We lose God's will for our lives. So Paul is saying, look to your eternal destiny. Think of it. Know it. Know it. 
know that it is sure because you have friends that saw the risen Savior. That's what he's saying to those first century Christians. They had friends. But they could, they could go talk to him. Did you see him? Did you see him raised up from the dead? Yes. And they, they, might, have, they might have had friends that, that, was there, that was there when Jesus rose up to, in, into heaven. They know that it is real. And Paul says, know it is real, but feel it. Feel it because his call to them is to stand firm. The call to stand firm is not just a call of the mind. It is a call of the heart. Stand firm. I know you're getting persecuted for your faith. I know it's harder sometimes when you deny yourself these pleasures. Stand firm, though, because glory awaits you and a Savior awaits you, and it's worth it. Consider all rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus and for the sake of being with him someday. And that is my call to you this morning. What are you going through this morning? What is, as, as, as Chris has shared uh, the past few weeks about death, we all go through death. It's, part, it's the cycle of life, the J-curve. It's life, death, and resurrection. We always want to go from life to resurrection, but, but because this world is broken over our, our sin and the sin of others, we, we, get, we experience death. What is the death that you're carrying around this morning? And Paul would say to you, stand firm. Stand firm. Gird yourself. Because you have an eternal, blessed, glorious future. It might seem far away, but it might be tomorrow. Even if it's far away, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, stand firm. Because the next age is, is eternal. And then we have Paul describing the enemies of the cross, the ungodly. The truth of the ungodly is that Paul calls them enemies. The cross is God's great plan of salvation. It's what he planned in eternity past to send his son into his creation to save them, to to take out his justice and his wrath on Jesus on the cross. That was his great plan out of love, out of love. And to be an enemy of the cross is to reject God's love. It's to look at the cross and see nothing. It is to look at the cross and feel nothing. It's to look at Jesus and see merely a man. Chris shared last week that we got to go out with Ron to do some evangelism. And I feel like that's, that's spreading throughout the church. That's what we need. We're not just a church of discipleship. We're a church of evangelism. But it was, it was hard having certain conversations with people, and they just said, he was just a man. He was just a man. I'm thinking, he's not a man. He's not just a man. He was a man. Praise God that he was a man. But he's God. And Paul describes them as, as enemies of this sacrificial act of Christ. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. When he said that hanging on the cross... Is that as if saying to Jesus, no thanks, I don't want your forgiveness. But look at the people as they're described as enemies of the cross. I was kind of shocked at first when I, when I first started to look through it. They're not described as people who hate Jesus. They're not described as persecutors, as those who mock, as those who bring as a terrorists, those who worship the devil with witchcraft and sorcery. That's not how they're described. 
They're described as their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with a mindset on earthly things. This description hit a lot closer to home than I wanted it to. Because that description can sound a lot like me. That description can sound a lot like you. I believe one reason Paul goes into this description and he ends with this exhortation of stand firm is because it is a call to Christian perseverance. The descriptions in the Bible about the ungodly, about hell, I believe one main reason we have them is, is, is to call us to persevere. It, call, it, it reminds us that this is, this is the sin. Sin is not without. When we look at the sin in the world, we shouldn't, we shouldn't think of it as something out in the world. We, we should see it in here. I'm an enemy of the cross and of myself. I'm a terrorist and of myself. I'm a rapist and of myself. That sin that is in the heart of those that I want to judge, that sin is inside me. That's a hard thing to come to grips with. But sometimes it's not, it's not too hard because I see it. Because of the way I treat my children the way I treat other people. Let's look at these phrases. Their God is their belly. Their God is their stomach. What does this mean? It means their God is their desires, their appetite. Being a slave to their own wants, what they care most about in life is satisfying themselves. God is not who rules over them. They are ruled by their appetites. How many times? I mean, I've I've preached in front of you guys maybe four times, three times. I don't know. How many times have I confessed my desire to eat Oreos or... Why? I mean, I think that comes up all the time because that's what happens. I, I ate two Gibson's donuts two, last night at like 11 o'clock. Sorry, Kim, that's where they went. My, that's what I'm saying. We read this. It describes us. I know what it's like to, to have all these, these desires for discipline, these desires to live a life a certain way. But my desires, my appetite says, no, 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 this is, this is better. It's immediate. We're all like this. This gets to the heart of sin, wanting your ways over God's ways, thinking your ways are better than God's ways. We see this in the garden, the very first sin in Genesis. God clearly blessed Adam and Eve with all this, this creation. Have you, have you looked at the description recently when he, when he says of what he's blessed them? He says, I've given you every tree, every plant that is good for Uh, food on the entire earth. Just don't eat from this one tree. Enjoy everything. Enjoy me. I'm with you. I'm speaking to you. I'm walking with you. But obey me. Trust me. Trust that my ways are better than your ways. Trust that I am God. You are the creation. Well, how does it describe Eve's sin where Adam was with him? was with her. Eve is tempted by the serpent, tempted to care more about her own desires. And it says that when Eve saw that it was good for food and a delight to the eyes, she ate and sin entered to God's perfect creation. Adam and Eve said, my plan, my desires are better than yours, God. Fast forward several thousand years later in another garden. 
with the new Adam, the perfect Adam, the seed of Eve, the promised seed of Eve. That was, that was promised in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fell. God said, but Eve, you're going to have a seed that's going to come someday that's going to trample the head of your enemy. And there was this new man, this new Adam in the garden. And he was going through, through the torment, the temptation of knowing what was waiting him, knowing that the cross was awaiting him, knowing that the forsakenness of his father, who he's never been forsaken from eternity past, was awaiting him. And he was tempted. He was overcome with, with tears and grief in the garden. But what did he say? He said, not my will be done, but your will be done. That is the essence of faith. It's to say, God, your will be done. I'm not always going to understand it. I'm not always going to want it. But God, your will be done. And so the flip side, what is the essence of sin is saying, my will be done. It's my life. My will be done. I'm autonomous. I am a rock. I'm an island. From that great song of Simon and Garfunkel. You ever heard that song? I love that song, but I started to think about it. I'm a rock. I'm an island. A rock feels no pain and an island never cries. He's a man left by himself. What is your position before God? Is your position before God, God, your will be done? Or is it, God, my will be done? Take your cues from me, God. I've heard, I, heard, I saw this once where someone mentioned, I, I loved it, it's always stood with me, is that as Christians, sometimes we write, we write down our, our list of, God, this is what I want in my life. The relationship, the job, the 401k, the whatever. We write it down. So this is what I want, God. And then you put a little signature at the bottom, you know, two signatures. God, I'm signing. God, will you sign this? This is my will. Will you sign off on this? And, and I heard, and he said, but you know what? what, what what's more biblical is, is this. Is this. You say, God, here's a blank page. I'm not sovereign. I'm a, I'm a human. I'm a human. I'm finite in that sense. I'm human. God, you're, you're in heaven you're in heaven. You are all wise, all knowing. You know God. You know God. So God, I can trust you. And I got to know you're good because you sent your son to die for me. I don't have to doubt that. God, I don't know. God, sign this. I'll sign it. God, whatever you, whatever you want, your will be done, not my will. And so they glory in their shame. Their shame is something they should confess. But these desires of theirs, living life, what they, what they value most, what they boast in, they boast in it. It's to their shame. With minds set on earthly things, and a, by living a life treasuring most to their own desires and wants, this is to only think of the here and now. No thought of eternity. No thought to a need of a savior for their brokenness. To have a mind set on earthly things is to go about our daily lives not realizing that every one of us is on the precipice of eternity. And that's what I've been thinking about this entire week, thinking about in front of me. You, you, you are bodies and you are souls. Every one of you is on the precipice of eternity. Earth is just not 
what we're here for. And at any moment, at any moment, we could be over the edge of eternity, staring face to face with God. Where he would say to some of us, enter in my beloved son, my beloved daughter. Or he would say, depart from me for I never knew you. And that is the reality. That is the reality. That's why Paul ends with their end is destruction. It is very clear from start to finish to live a life rejecting God's good ways. God's salvation is to live a life destined for destruction, for ruin, for loss, total loss of every aspect of goodness and hope and love and mercy. Everything that's good in this world. I was reading a description of hell. Somebody, you know, describing hell earlier this week. And he was saying, we're used to living in a, in, in a life of pain. You know, we're not, we're not foreign to pain. But, but there's, there's always something that can take it away. There's, if we're in darkness, there's always light. You can flip on a light. You can turn on your phone. You can get outside. But hell, we don't ha- there is none of that. There is no relief from the pain. There is no, there's no light. It's, it's, it's described as outer darkness. The bottomless pit. There's total disorientation. And when you've been there for 10,000 years, you've no more longer time to go than what you've already spent. There's only 10 more thousand years and 10 more thousand years and 10 more thousand years. I can't. So it's so hard. It's so hard. The Bible is so clear on this. It's so clear. Once again, I surveyed all of the scriptures on hell, and I can't come but to this conclusion that hell is real, that hell is final, that hell is punishment. I, I, it's, it is. Jesus talked more on it than anybody else. He uses the same words to describe the eternity of heaven that he describes the eternity of hell. People don't believe in this. There's this belief called annihilationism. Some of you might believe in this. If you do, I'd love to talk with you more. I understand. I understand it. It means that when a person dies, they're either tormented for a short time and then annihilated, or right at their death, or at the second judgment, they're, they're annihilated. They cease to exist. Or there's the other belief that there really is no hell. There's, it's called universalism. That everybody will end up in heaven one day. Surveying all the scripture, I cannot, I have to reject those two beliefs. I reject it because it's not biblical, in my opinion, and I reject it because it belittles the cross. What did Jesus suffer for you on the cross? He took on hell. He suffered an eternity of hell for you. He's an eternal being. That's how he can suffer the eternity of hell. His whole life, as it talks about in Philippians 2, was one going from the glories of heaven to the cross. That was one big suffering where in, in God's scales with all of our sins, not my sin, not your sin, but the sins of tens of millions of believers were laid upon him and he suffered for that on the cross. If you take away hell, 
you take away the glory of the cross. And as already mentioned, you take away the justice of God. So is it a wonder why Paul says, as I've told you before, even now with tears, there are those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and their end is destruction. Do we wonder why there's tears there? All my teenage life, I had no tears. I was the biggest Pharisee. I had some good motives. I loved people if they, if they liked me, if they were like me. But if you weren't, if you were in the party scene, if you, have you, had a, if you had an ungodly lifestyle, oh man, no tears for you. I judged you. I judged you. By my words, by my actions, I hated you. No tears. I'm still living with, the, with, with trying to shed the hardness of that heart from those years. Don't forget the truth. And Lord, please don't forget the tears. I ruined my witness to so many people. When, when, when I, I would read the, 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 uh, in the Gospels when Jesus would, would turn over, you know, uh, the story when Jesus went into the temple courts and uh, there, was, there was money exchanging. It, it turned into a place where just sin was going on. He was so mad that he, he threw over the, t- the, the, the tables and ran them out. I, I was the type of person who's like, yes, go get them. That's what they deserve. Do you know what the passage is right before it? Right before that passage in Luke, it says Jesus was riding into the city on his way to the last week of his life, knowing he was about to experience the screams of crucify, crucify, crucify. And it says he looked over the city and he wept. He wept tears, tears over the lost tears over sin that was going to drive him to the cross. He wept tears. Paul has tears. Jesus has tears. Let's have tears. Let's be a church of truth, a church of tears. So my, that's, that's my application to you this morning. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, stand firm that you have a future But look at those whose God is their belly. Who are only living for this world and have tears for them. And let those tears move you into action. Let them, the friends, the family members in your life, move towards their pain. Move towards their brokenness. I don't know how I'm still trying to figure out myself how to do it. But we got to try. We've got to. we got to have tears over their lostness. We've got to preach the gospel to them to their last dying breath. To their dying breath, we've got to preach the gospel to them. We've got to love them. This morning, if, if you were not saved, please, please, see the truth of eternity this morning. Let me say something. You might hear the description of hell and it chills you. It's meant to, but let me say something. If all you have is fear of punishment, fear of hell, that's not what gets you into heaven. That's not what gets you saved. 
I mean, let me give you an analogy to, to, so you can understand this. Um, Ellie, my oldest, when, when we lived in London, she, she had this reoccurring nightmare. We had this small little flat, uh, you know, my bedroom from, from my door to Ellie was, you know, that door. Uh, just this one little hallway. She'd have this reoccurring nightmare uh, that, that a bug was, a big bug was coming into her room. And she would go, bug, 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 please, please help, bug. And I would hear that. It wasn't a... But here's the thing. If, if Ellie's cry was just a simple, I'm scared, help, fear. But th- there was no... There was no father at the end of that cry. Then that, that fear that she held, that fear that she had would, would get her nowhere. If it echoed down an empty hallway into an empty room, she would be left with that. But she was not left with that because I was there. I'm her dad. You hear that? And I'm up in a second. I'm to that room. I pick her up and say, Ellie, I'm here. I'm here. It's okay. I'm your dad. I love you. I love you. It's okay. And she goes from just squirming in tears and then she just, she rests in my arms. And I can wipe away those tears because I'm her dad. That's my job. And she loves me. She loves me. Because I'm there for her. I bring her peace. I bring her salvation. Do you see? What gets you into heaven is not a fear of hell. It is a loving embrace of the all-satisfying, sacrificial Savior. It's to love Him. It's to cherish Him. It's to say everything in my life is lost compared to knowing Jesus. I know hell is real, and I, but thank you, God, that you saved me from it. Thank you, God, that you took that on yourself on the cross for my sake. So if you're a believer, if you're not a believer this morning, in your tears, come to the weeping Savior and embrace him and love him. Please, I beg you, I plead with you. I plead with God for mercy, God. Please, God, please see the beautiful Savior and accept him. See, your sin, you can get nowhere. You can get nowhere with it. This world, it, it, it will fail you. Jesus Christ will save you. Turn to him this morning. When we're having communion in just a few moments, think of the body. Think of the blood that took hell for you. Please. Let me pray. Dear God, Dear God, all we, all we say is, is, is help. His mercy, God. Oh God, we are so, we're so, our eyes are so fixed on this world and our lives. It's so hard for us to get out of it, to see beyond, to see the eternal. God, we ask in your sovereign mercy and your sovereign goodness that you will send your Holy Spirit now to those who need to see your glory. Lord, that they will see their sin and they will feel sorrow. But they will see their Savior and come to him. And Lord, help us live our lives 
preaching the truth of the gospel. Help us do it with tears. In Jesus' name, amen.